May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. What are we here for? It's the kind of question that gets kicked around by first-year philosophy students in lecture halls and dorm rooms late into the night. It's the sort of thing that mature adults like you and I tend not to have time to consider (laughs) given the responsibilities of our busy lives. But there are moments when even the busiest among us pause to take stock and wonder, what are we here for? Human beings have an innate craving for a sense of purpose in our work, in our relationships, even in our playtime, in our relaxation. We seek to find deeper meaning in what we do and how we spend our time. Or else we find ourselves ignoring those kind of questions altogether, seeking happiness by amusing ourselves nearly to death. Lately, there has been an increase in the talk in our culture about cultivating what's called mindfulness. And that seems to me to be a way of acknowledging that human life is not just meant to be experienced passively, but that life is more enjoyable and actually somehow fundamentally better when we're able to be truly present to others and to ourselves. Now, I think this emphasis on presence is actually sort of fascinating because it feels like a reaction to the creeping sense that many of us have that the omnipresent communication technology and social media that press in on us at all times are actually doing more to alienate us from one another than to connect us. The truth is that many of us walk around most days with devices in our pockets that can access the vast majority of music, history, photography, film, and literature that humanity has ever produced. So having a run-of-the-mill conversation with another real live person can feel like a big step down from all of that possibility. Who can be bothered to talk about the weather when we could be listening to a beautiful Italian aria or reading Shakespeare, even if we're probably just using our smartphones to watch videos of dogs riding skateboards, (laughs) or to observe our family members having a Facebook argument from a very safe distance. (laughs) So being intentionally present invites us to consider what we are here for on a deeper level. The Westminster Shorter Catechism famously says that humankind's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's a pretty tidy description. But to put it another way, we were made to worship. Worship is the proper vocation of all creation. Ideally, of course, we will worship the one true God. But if left to our own devices, we will worship ourselves, or our money, or power, or false idols, or a wide variety of creative other options. And if worship is the thing that we're made to do, then Psalm 98, which we read this morning, is a call to embrace our true identity 
as worshipers of God. I want to invite you, if you have your insert in the bulletin this morning, to grab it because we're going to spend some time with the psalm. Uh, You could even open one of the prayer books in the back of the pews and find Psalm 98 if you were feeling ambitious this morning. Now, the psalms are in many ways actually the first prayer book. In Hebrew, the book of Psalms was first titled just Praises. And that designation fits well because these 150 psalms, which are really just songs in prose, show how Israel developed the praise of God into a higher art form. They capture in poetic language the full experience of human life. And they take those emotions that we all have and direct them to God. The Psalms are remarkably flexible, and they give voice to love and trust in often deeply personal terms. They were not just delivered to us out of heaven. They were written by real people like you and I. And they're strong enough to weave together even lament and protest into that broader language of praise for God. That's at least one of the reasons why we insist on reading the Psalms and reciting them in worship, because we believe that we don't need to try to improve on the language of the Psalms. And because if we want to pray to God in faithful language, then we can use the honest words that have been handed down to us by generations of worshipers. Psalm 98 is what's called an enthronement psalm. It's one of the psalms in the Bible used to celebrate God as king. It's a musical piece designed for use in worship. That's why the psalm itself explicitly calls for musical accompaniment, for instruments to be used, both stringed and brass, because praising God leads naturally into music and song. This psalm is divided into three parts. First, there is Praise to the Lord God because of the mighty things he's done in the past. Then praise to the Lord who rules as the king in the present. And finally, a call to the whole creation to praise the Lord who will come in the future to restore all things. This is the widest possible cosmic realization of God's purpose for the world. When we spoke a few weeks ago about God's steadfast covenantal love, his hesed in the book of Ruth, this is what that love looks like when it takes form. And the whole created world bears witness and offers its thanks. This psalm has as its thesis the idea that throughout history, God has been acting through major events in the lives of God's people. Events like the exodus and the wandering in the wilderness and the conquest of Canaan. And now in the psalmist's vision, all things are being brought to a loud and joyous crescendo that invites celebration in ever-widening circles. It starts with the people of God who are gathered in worship, celebrating what God has done. He has done marvelous things and won for himself the victory. But the praise does not stop there. In verses 3 and 4, Israel's deliverance has been openly shown in the sight of the nations, and all the ends of the world have seen the salvation of our God. So the circle of praise is widening. And then in verses 8 and 9, the summons to praise goes out to even the inanimate 
natural world, the sea and the land, the rivers and the mountains. And that's because when the good news of God's salvation is proclaimed and visible, the praise cannot be contained just to human beings. Isaac Watts' lyrics to the hymn have it exactly right. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let heaven and nature sing. Uh, You thought I was going to sing it. Sorry. So the scene that the psalmist describes is like something from Disney's Fantasia or C.S. Lewis's vision of Narnia. Salvation is declared and mercy and truth are proclaimed and what we might think of as silent, inanimate, dumb nature comes alive. The sea and the rivers and the hills and the mountains join in the singing and dancing because of the overwhelming joy that comes from seeing the victory the Lord has won. This is worship that sets everything in its proper place, acknowledging God as creator and ruler and healer of all things. This psalm is also an exhortation as well as an offering. It's a call to the whole wide world to rejoice with a kind of unhinged jubilation that the Lord who has done marvelous things will return to render judgment. This is a profound thing that we should not gloss over, that the Lord who is the God of Israel and who sent his son into the world for our salvation is also the one who will call all people and all nations to account. That means he calls all people and all nations into a saving relationship with himself such that God is not our private possession, but the universal king who reigns over all. Now that is, of course, very good news, but just as the ancient Israelites sometimes struggled with this, we have a tendency to get a little bit possessive of God. We slip into a kind of narrow religious nationalism, Because though God has told Israel from the very beginning of his covenant work with them that he chose them to be a blessing to others, they often began to think it was all about them. That happens to the church as well. But here we see all the nations, even those that maybe hated enemies, commanded to join in praising God because he is their king. In a world which is so often hostile to Christian truth, it might be hard for us to imagine our enemies joining in the chorus of praise or playing the strings or the brass in the orchestra. The world, of course, does often take issue with the question of whether or not the Lord is king of the universe, but that is clearly what the scriptures intend to teach us. The result is that everyone and everything should worship. In thanks and in anticipation of the final victory of God, a moment when his glory will be revealed and every eye will see it together. And that revelation of God's glory implies judgment. Judgment is one of those words that sounds a little churchy, that makes us a little bit nervous because it implies guilt and punishment. But what the psalm teaches us is that the response to God's judgment is not fear and trembling, but singing and praise because of the one who will pronounce the verdict. 
The judgment of the Lord is welcome because the Lord is the righteous judge. And his judgment is not just the imposition of a kind of criminal justice on sinners and evildoers, but is also the positive, passionate assertion of God's will for the world. All peoples and all nations are called to sing to the one who will judge the world and rule with equity and justice. As James Mays puts it, this psalm believes and claims that God has been shaping Israel's particular history to establish and reveal his rule over the whole universe. And despite the disasters of sin and the terrors of history, the Lord will make all things right again. That is what judgment is in the kingdom of God. This message is, in fact, part of the gospel of God's love for the world. So there is hope even for rebels like you and I. God's judgments are not opposed to his love. They are the very instrument of his love. They restore all that is broken to the goodness that the Bible calls righteousness. I have a friend of mine who is a very gifted pastor, but also a bit of a character. And you have to imagine if I think he's a character, what that might mean. Um, And so while we were in school together, when we would have moments of difficulty or challenge, when studying was going on late into the night or conflict was being sorted out, he would sometimes just start to break out in song. Not sort of full-blown Broadway show tunes, but sort of quiet hymns to God of praise, or even popular tunes that people might have known. It was a very strange habit at first, but there is something very powerful about singing together. When you're tired, when you're stressed, even sometimes when you're annoyed, it helps to calm the soul. And that's what praising God does with respect to the impending judgment that the Lord will bring. That praise, that singing, it's what God deserves, but it's also good for us. It lightens our burdens. Praising God gives God glory while also nurturing the hope of the faithful. You'll recall that the Apostle Paul and his friends would sing songs of praise while in prison to keep their spirits up that enslaved people all around the world sing songs of salvation and freedom in order to focus themselves not on their present suffering, but the divine vindication that they hope for. And that we sing songs when we're tired or frightened because they fan the flames of hope within our hearts and spirits. We tend to think of worship as only what we do on Sunday mornings particularly the words that we sing. But if the psalmist is right, and we are called to sing a new song, that new song should be offered daily because of the incredible things that God has done. So the issue is not whether true worship is offered with an organ or a guitar or just with a cappella human voices, but true worship is offered when we submit all our lives to God. The best instrument, therefore, for worship is the human heart, because worship is what we are here to do. Not just for eternity 
in the heavenly city, but here and now. In the way that we speak to our neighbors and how we raise our children and serve the poor and steward our resources. All that we say and do in this life reveals who and what we worship. So the new song the psalmist calls us to sing is not just that anticipation of God's righteous judgment, but it also serves to proclaim the kingdom today, here and now. It is a form of worship and praise that is also preaching an invitation that we all participate in. Praising God calls others to lift up their voices as well, to join us in the work of serving the one who is Lord and Savior of all. Psalm 98 trumpets the clear message of the entire scripture, that we are redeemed not by what we have done, but by what God has done most significantly in the life and death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection and reign. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul, says the old hymn. But our hands don't have to save us because his right hand and holy arm have won the victory and we need only to trust what he has done for us. We are saved not by trying, but by trusting. And that's why our efforts to glorify ourselves, to justify ourselves, to exalt ourselves are ultimately so futile and unfulfilling because all of our glory and all our justification and all our self-exaltation of what we have done or created or accomplished will pale in comparison to the all-surpassing victory of God displayed for everyone to see in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We offer our praise and our worship and indeed our whole lives because we know that we are not able to do for ourselves what Christ has done for us. Amen.